Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Sally here got an interview coming shortly with our friend Trevor Emmelman talking masters, talking bifurcation, talking CBS, all of the works. This interview is brought to you by our friends at Omni. Omni Hotels and Resorts, they deliver the best modern golf experience from corner to coast. They've got 12 golf destinations with 28 different courses. You know, as we're rolling into spring here, rolling into the WGC Dell, they do have the Omni Barton Creek Resort and Spa in Austin, Texas. Conditions are mint at many of the Omni res- hotels and resorts golf courses right now. There's, of course, the Omni Champions Gate in Orlando, Florida, and, of course, Omni PGA Frisco and Fields Ranch in Frisco opening in May. It's going to be one of the coolest golf experiences out there. I cannot wait for the golf world and uh, everyone to start experiencing what's going on in Frisco because I think it is going to be a game changer in the world of ma- major championships golf and also a really freaking cool place to go hang play golf and experience all the offerings that these resorts have you can go with uh, it could be a guy's trip you can go with the family omni resorts have pools world-class spas signature restaurants awesome hospitality and phenomenal golf uh, you can go to their website omnihotels.com slash nlu and you can check out the extensive list of golf course architects classic architects that uh, have designed a lot of their courses donald ross bill uh, bill core and ben crenshaw william flynn it's really impressive so book a trip get out there to tee it up at omnihotels.com slash nlu let's get to trevor emmelman all right, I've thought a lot about what Scotty Scheffler had to say about the morning before the final round of the Masters last year. He's in tears. He wasn't sure if he's ready for the moment. What's Sunday morning like before the final round of the 2008 Masters and wherever Trevor Emmelman is staying? Man, it's, um, it's a little tense. It's a little tense. I'm not going to lie to you, Solly. You know, if I backtrack a little bit, we had a weather delay that came in on Saturday, a couple hours, all the tee times were pushed back. So Snedeker and I were in the final group we played that last hole like on the verge of darkness. I mean, you couldn't have gone another hole. And weirdly enough, both of us stuffed our second shots in there and birdied the final hole of the third round. So once I'd finished all of the media and all that kind of stuff, I only left the course at around 9 p.m. on Saturday night. So got back to the house that we had rented. You know, my son, who was 18 months old at the time, was already eaten dinner and asleep. You know, I had some dinner. I had spaghetti bolognese. These are just little, this is weird how this is all coming back to me now as I'm talking about it. But I had spaghetti bolognese, stayed up for a couple more hours and then just crashed. And I slept really well and slept until 8 a.m. But still, you wake up and you've got all this time now to kill between that and this three o'clock tea time. And it's a little tense because you're on edge. You you can feel the the magnitude and the size of the moment and you're just trying to keep your mind calm somehow but it's almost like you're drowning like it's like you it's like you just you're trying to you're trying to swim so badly but you it's a battle you're not going to win your mind is just going to take over and all sorts of crazy stuff is going to pop in and at times you know because of like the the rhythms and the roller coaster of your thought at times you're going to feel like oh yeah I, i've got this i can get this done today 
and I can win the Masters. And then at other times, you're like, well, what happens if I go out there and shoot 82 and just, you know, absolutely blow this thing up and everybody's talking about how I choked. And so, you know, for a number of hours, you're running this roller coaster. And then you wonder whether you should just go to the golf course and start hitting balls. And then you're like, okay, maybe that sounds okay. Maybe I'll do that. And then you think, oh, but what happens then if I give extra time and the media is going to try and grab me again and I'm going to have to talk about it? Or what happens if I start hitting for too long and I wear myself out? Or all of a sudden my swing gets out of rhythm and then I, I lose this feel that I've got going this week. So it's chaos. It is absolute chaos in your mind. And really the challenge is to just be able to try and roll with that stuff without getting caught in any of these crazy emotions. I had a, a rule that week. I uh, actually had my parents staying with me, had my brother and his family staying with me as well. And I had a rule that week. Sorry to all my friends at Golf Channel, but I had a rule, no Golf Channel on TV and, and no sports pages in the house. Uh, I just didn't want to get caught up in, in all of that stuff. I wanted to just focus on my game, focus on myself, focus on the strategy at hand. So my wife tells me now it was kind of funny because my, my uh, you know, every time I left the room, then other family members would click on the golf channel or, <laughs> you know, pull, pull out a newspaper and start reading. Uh, but thankfully enough, you know, I didn't see any of that stuff. And so you roll through that and then you get to the course and you try as soon as you can to drop into your routine. Uh, something I remember vividly is, you know, we warmed up at the, the old uh, practice area. You know, I always used to love going down to the left corner and, and hit uh, some shots that would start a little bit to the right and draw back into uh, that hedge, that big hedge that runs down the left side of the old practice facility. Because uh, I, I played a fade, so in warm-up, I would try and hit numerous draws just to equalize things a little bit. And as I turned around the corner and looked down to the side where I like to hit, uh, you know, I saw Tiger there in his red shirt, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. I mean, this guy, he started already. He knows I like to hit balls there. <laughs> he knows everything. Don't let anybody try and ever tell you that he's not paying attention. He pays attention to everything. He knows everything. He knows everybody's weak spots. And so he went down the hit balls and I was like, well, I'm going to have to go too. And uh, went and threw my balls uh, right down next to him. And we warmed up right next to each other. And, and that was it. I'm, I'm a little relieved to hear all that, to be honest, because it's, uh, <laughs> well, it, it's the, you know, the biggest golf term in the world. How in the world do you not picture and start thinking about putting the green jacket on, right? How do you not, it has to be literally impossible, right? So do you embrace that thought? And if I, I watched some, uh, some of the final round back last night, and to me, it seemed like your way of doing that was, it was a windy day and we could talk about that as well, but it seemed like your process was going to be how can I, you know, maybe if my focus on a shot is normally, let's call it 85%, now it's going to be like 130. It is going to be like, I have to go through a checklist. I have to like look at this golf hole. I have to, hone. I'm thinking about your shot on 13. You know, you're figuring out what the wind is doing and you took your time on that. Everyone was taking their time that day. And it was like, you, you, it felt like when you got into that shot, you were the only person on the planet, right? Is that, is that kind of how you uh, adjusted with the pressure, kept your mind off of the, the green jacket ceremony? That was really the way I had to play. I was extremely intense with the way I played. And in a lot of ways, I think that's, that's, that's why I, 
I burnt out so quickly. Mm. Uh, I like, I was all in, man. but, but I'm talking about from when I was five years old, from <laughs> when I picked up the game, like I was all in anybody that, um, you know, you speak to that, uh, could tell you about how I competed as a kid. Like I was mega, mega intense. And so that was always really my thing. How do you stop yourself thinking uh, about it? I don't think you can, like I touched on earlier. And really on that Saturday night, uh, there was a moment there in the, the time, you know, after dinner, before I fell asleep, where I 100% said to myself, look, this, this could be your best shot ever to win one of these. This, this may be your only shot ever to win one of these. So now that you've acknowledged that, what is what can you do to put yourself in the best possible position to get that done you know that involved taking a look at the forecast we knew it was going to be extremely windy uh, and difficult and so what are the strategies for me be, to be able to navigate the course and then also from a mental standpoint okay is it best thing for me to pay attention to the leaderboards is it best thing for me to focus on where tiger is and what he's doing or what Snedeker is doing, who I'm playing with, or is it best for me to just say, you know what, I don't care what those guys are doing, 18 holes that I've got to grind it out here, I'm going to worry about myself and then just see what happens at the end. And that was the route I decided to, to go with. It was mega tricky and you had, to, you had to take your time, you had to be thoughtful as well as always being reactive, but you have to be thoughtful in that moment because that... You know, the secret to Augusta National is, okay, over the years as they've changed the course, it has become a bit more of a driving course. There are four or five tee shots there that are, are difficult. There's no doubt about it. Things have narrowed up. It's gotten a little longer and a bit more demanding off of the tee than what it was in the 90s, let's say. But it still is a second shot golf course. So when you have these small plateaus that, uh, you know, are four or five yards by five yards, and it's a tiny little spot that you got to keep the ball in if you want a makeable birdie putt. That's difficult at the best of times. And the beauty of Augusta National, part of the challenge is you hit from so many uneven lies that it can throw you off to get it into those plateaus. So now you not only have that, but you've got winds gusting into the 30s, you know, 30 miles an hour. It's brutally difficult to be able to create the correct trajectory and spin and control to give yourself some type of decent look for birdie. Cause if you're missing these plateaus, then all of a sudden three putt is on. So it was, uh, it was a, 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 a grind of a day. It was, uh, it was quite something. Was it good for you as a, with a two shot league going to the last round that it was windy, that you probably weren't going to get run down from behind. Would you rather it be kind of a, a slug fest like it ended up being on that day? Or would you rather have been able to, you know, kind of pin your ears back a little bit and go? Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I don't want this to sound arrogant in any way, but I think that helped me for a number of reasons. Number one, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, which could quite possibly be the windiest place on earth. And so, you know, I honed my skills day in and day out playing in heavy, blustery wind. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I've always hit down on the ball so much and been able to flight the ball down. And so I was comfortable navigating that. I knew I could control my ball in those kinds of conditions. And also, you know, back then, I saw myself as, as one of the better ball strikers on tour. 
uh, particularly with irons. And so the tougher the conditions, I felt like, you know, the better my chances would be. I, uh, 2008 me could not have pictured uh, wanting to hear more from you and interviewing you about this because, man, a, a lot of us were not, we did not like what you did to Tiger on that day. A lot of us <laughs> tuned in at senior college me was tuned in to watch Tiger sure. come hunt you down. We, we didn't care about Trevor hey, at that point. He's my golfing hero too, man. <laughs> I mean, I totally get it. I totally get it. You know, put yourself in my position for a second. You know, this is a guy that even though he's only uh, – what is he four or five years older than me you know when i was coming through the junior ranks worldwide and ajga here in america and u.s juniors and stuff like that you know his his legacy had or had already been made as winning three u.s juniors then winning three usms and i was like following in the wake of this guy saying okay this is the benchmark i mean this guy is just insanely good how can uh how can i find a way to be able to to try and compete with with him. And then when he turned pro in 96 and won the masters and very early on won twice in the PGA tour and then won the masters in 97, I'm still an amateur golfer at this point. And I'm going back home to South Africa and I'm telling people like, you've got to see this guy, Tiger Woods, you've got to see how he plays the game and how good he is. And he's going to trans transform the sport into something that we've never seen before. And people looked at me like I was crazy back home in South Africa. You know, he goes on that tear very, very quickly becoming the world's best player um, right before I turned pro in late 1999. And so I'm looking at this guy like the benchmark. Just less than a decade later, I, I got a chance to beat him at the biggest tournament in the world. It's, it's, it's mind bending for me as well. Don't you worry about it. I'm sure, man. It's a... Uh... A lot to talk. I want to talk a little bit with you about how Augusta has, has evolved over the years as well. But, you know, every every golf fan this time of year is trying to handicap the Masters in some way. I know you're commenting on it. I'm not asking you to make your picks and things like that. And you touched on it a little bit in, in terms of how difficult the approach shots are. But, like, how do you, you know, you've actually won here. You've been here a million times. You've played in 16 Masters, I think it is. What are the biggest tests at Augusta? What What, if people are looking at things like, trending of how people are playing i don't see a lot of similar golf courses to what we're going to see here in a few weeks so it's really hard to say like hey you know count rory out because he missed the cut at the players like that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for me so what what is the the most important thing most important test skills to have and how do you look at how guys are trending heading into the masters yeah I, look i totally agree with you on with your take on the stadium course at sawgrass i mean that's that just a, it's not it. it's a complete <laughs> different animal it is it was always the toughest golf course for me to play that place drove me nuts because it was just wherever whenever i would lift my head up off of the ground i would just see a disaster in front of me so it, it absolutely gets to certain players and some weeks guys can hit it get lucky there and play great golf and then other weeks they'll come back, you know, even though they're amazing players like Ernie Els or Rory McIlroy, they could struggle there. So that's a bit of a weird golf course. Augusta National, totally different in the standpoint of you tend to see the same people play well there. Uh, and it's absolutely evolved over the years. Look, when I first played in 1999, that was the first year they brought the second cut in. Uh, before that, it was just ball running all over the place into the trees and the pine straw, which presents its own challenges because now you, the fairways start to narrow because there's no bumpers out there, so to speak. 
Uh, first first uh, year I played in 99 as an amateur, like I said, there was the second cut. That presents its own challenges. Okay, maybe now on occasion the ball won't be running as deep into the trees. But now when you've got that little bit of extra grass around the ball from a distance control standpoint, is this going to come out quick? Is it going to come out with more spin? Sometimes it's difficult to judge with the overseed rye how that ball is going to react. And distance control on your approach shot is just, it's priority number one at Augusta National. So it absolutely has evolved because, you know, like I touched on earlier, back in the 80s and 90s, it was swing for the fences off of the tee. And then how good you, could your control be with your approach shot? And then if you did make the mistake, who were the best chippers and putters? Was it Ben Crenshaw? Is it Olathabal? Is it Seve? Is it Gary Player? Uh, you know, was it an Arnold Palmer who could overpower a course or a Nicholas who could overpower a course? Uh, so um, it's changed now. You've, you've got to be a fully rounded player to be able to play well uh, at Augusta National now. There's so many tee shots that ask questions, many more than what I think there were when, when I first played or when I was watching as a youngster. You know, even the first tee shot now, it's narrowed down because of that uh, that bunker, right, at around 290, 300 or so. So it's pinched in there to probably, you know, less than 25 yards. So you now have to make the decision. Can you take it over or are you going to lay up? Two has become a more difficult tee shot. Five is open. Seven is like single file down that fairway. And you have a fairway that pitches quite heavily from left to right. So now you have to land it in the left half. Otherwise, that ball trickles into the second cut down the right-hand side and there's a big tree in your way and you can't see the green. So seven has gotten tough. Nine has gotten tough. Eleven, you've got a, it's much narrower than what it used to be. Uh, remains to be seen how 13 is going to play. I can't wait to see. I'm going to go play there later this week, so I'll, I'll be able to let you know more. 17 has gotten narrow. 18 is, is the toughest tee shot on the whole golf course. There is so little space to be able to curve your ball on 18. I mean, you have to hit really for the first 200 yards of its flight. This thing needs to go straight and then it's only allowed to fade a little bit. It, it asks a lot of questions of you now, that golf course. It, it absolutely um, has gotten to a point to where there, there is no faking it from a standpoint of, oh, you can just spray it off of the tee and get away with it. Just not anymore, in my opinion. A lot of stuff in that answer for our distance discussion, which we'll have here shortly. But uh, <laughs> I can't wait. Oh my <laughs> but what, one thing, like idiots like me, say a lot, and I did not hear you say is, and I, it's a common, I guess, thing. I've, I've, I think I've said it less in recent years because I don't hear a lot of people, smart people like you say it. But I didn't hear you say anything about drawing the golf ball. Like that's a, that's something a lot of people say is you got to be able to draw it at Augusta. Uh, you don't seem to think that that is a is a heavy, you, you know, a fader is not like eliminated from winning the Masters. Not at all, not at all, because as these holes have been stretched back, uh, some of the, the dog leg has been taken out of it. I don't see that as a prerequisite at all. And you look at Scotty Scheffler, how beautifully he played uh, last year. He predominantly goes with that fade and then he puts that crazy follow through on it when he throws the right hand to try and turn it over. He absolutely has the ability to do that, but he, he very rarely pulls it out there. You know, the only one that I can think of is number 10 where we see him doing that to try and sling it around the corner to catch the fast lane but 
nah, you, you, you did not have to only work the ball from right to left to have success there now. Spring is in the air. It's time for you to start thinking about getting out to the golf course, especially walking the golf course. Uh, my walking experience has been greatly enhanced by my love by the classic style, the Walker Trolley Cape 1.5, which means I am going to love that the Cape now comes standard with run flat tires, the same great trolley with the same look, the same feel that you love, but now with no worry of a flat tire on the golf course. Again, the Walker Trolley Cape is the number one premium push cart on the market, bringing classic style with an ample use of modern technology. And the Cape 1.5's polished aluminum Aluminum frame and use of waxed canvas and leather creates a trolley that stands out all over the golf course. I can't go anywhere and use this thing without getting asked about by somebody. They're always taking pictures of the name. I'm guessing that they are also going to walkertrolleys.com to go shop for one on their own. And for a limited time, Walker Trolleys has a bundle starter package available for $3.99, which includes the Cape 1.5, a sand and water bottle holder, and an umbrella holder. So again, walkertrolleys.com today if you want to walk the course in style, bring your game to a new level for 2023. Let's get back to Trevor in a moment. Can you help explain, I think all of us were kind of taken a little off guard last year when Tiger even committed to playing in the Masters and then showing up on one and a half legs and <laughs> being, I think, T10 or T12 after round one, whatever it was. I don't think there's a lot of places where that can happen, and I don't want to chalk all of it up to just like course knowledge, right? I mean, at a certain point, there's a law of diminishing returns as it comes to course knowledge. I mean, somebody like... Phil Mickelson, in theory, has all of the course knowledge possible at Augusta. And guys that have played it 25 times have about as much as you can get. But how can that guy show up without having played professional golf? And, I mean, we know his record and all that. But that still was one of the most astonishing accomplishments I've seen in his career. How can you explain his genius around that golf course? I'm not sure I can. I've been trying to figure this out for two decades. Because it wasn't spectacular. It wasn't like he was hitting towering shots. It was just... You know, again, you you would you can go out there. You know all the right places to miss, and I guess it's just—is it his ability to actually do that and miss in the right places and and add it up at the? It, you know what I mean? It wasn't like he was draining birdies everywhere. It's just like, dude, you add it up at the end of the day, and he beat a shitload of guys. Yeah, look, Sully, you, you, <laughs> the way you you try and understand talent, or at least the way I try and understand talent, is I think of it as, let's just say, containers holding water. Okay, so if, uh, if I'm just like a normal water bottle like this, okay, I'm just a normal water bottle and somebody else may be slightly less and then Rory McIlroy may be three of these water bottles and Scotty Scheffler and the rest. Like Tiger Woods is like a giant 20-gallon drum <laughs> of talent. Okay, they're... they're it's really only Jack Nicholas that we can compare this guy to. It is insane, uh, you know, the vastness of talent and skill that he is able to try and recruit or pull from when he's competing. And the crazy part when you have to compete against him is that talent level is not just physical. It's his mental abilities as well. And that, that revolves around strategy, understanding courses, course management, understanding his strengths and weaknesses. You know, it, it is incredible. And even his memory, when you talk about Augusta National and how he was able to shoot that round uh, with all of these different injuries that he's had when he pitches up there last year, his memory of different shots that he's hit there 
and different shots he's seen other people hit there and putts he's seen other people hit there. Like the, the stuff that he is pulling from, oh, I've, I've seen this putt. Ben Crenshaw hit this putt in 95 when he won. It breaks this much instead of that much. Boom, he makes it. He's on a completely different level to anybody else. And I say this with all due respect to, to all of these players, you know, that are out there today. He's just special. He's just special. And even now, after everything that he's been through, and I'm talking here right now, 2023, the only thing I worry about is can this guy play four days in a row walking and even five days in a row? Um, you know, I imagine he'll do nine Tuesday, nine Wednesday, something like that. So I'll call that one day as 18 holes and then four rounds of the tournament. Can he do that and be able to recover in time uh, physically with as hilly as what this golf course is? It is the most demanding walk on tour by far. The game, I am like not worried about his game at all. Not worried about his hands around the green. I'm not worried about his putting because he knows the greens better than anybody. I'm not worried about distance. We've seen enough ball speed. I'm not worried about shot shape, uh, distance control at all. He still has the ability to win this tournament at 47. It's just whether his body is going to be able to allow him to do it. A couple things to you know, if I, to support that, I would say we're not going to Augusta National Masters. Everybody tees off one. There's not a you know he'll have a morning tee time and a late tee time, but it's not like it was at Riv where he's got a you know he's playing Thursday afternoon, rolling into Friday morning. That quick recovery time. I was surprised that Riv did, did it that way. I'd be surprised if the Masters didn't go him Thursday morning and Friday afternoon, give him a little bit of recovery <laughs> time uh, in between that. And I think it. Like, I, I don't think he's going to win, but like, I think it's no matter what happens, it's such an interesting storyline. Now that the expectations are so much lower for him, truly a T20 performance would be nothing short of incredible, right? It gives you a whole nother layer of the championship to watch. And um, I don't know, you guys are, we will talk a little bit about coverage, but I feel like the way you guys have, have handled him or you, the way you handled him at Riviera was, was, was great. It was a, a subtext. It was a subplot that was going on, but it didn't interrupt from the actual, you know, the leaders at the top of the board that was going on. And uh, I think it tees up really, really, really well for you guys to have a very entertaining uh, weekend. Mm. For me, though, the, the drama of this week uh, is going to happen a lot, a lot sooner than Sunday. The Champions Dinner drama has been floating around a little bit. I've been texting you almost weekly, like, what, what's going on here? Like, what is going on here? It's like, what is the official? I, I, have the Live guys gotten invites to the Champions Dinner? Is that all happening? And what are you anticipating the atmosphere to be like in that room? Well, I'll start off by saying that I've received an invite to, to be at the dinner. Uh, I posted it on social media. I thought it was kind of cool just so people could get a look at what... Uh, Scotty Scheffler was going with. Seems like uh, he likes some spicy food. So do I. So I'm in for that. Looking forward to it. I, I really cannot comment on if live players have received invites or not. I would imagine so. But the reason I can't comment on it is because I, I have not spoken to any of them to ask them. And uh, so I would just be speculating on that. Look, there's absolutely going to be an elephant in the room. There's no doubt about it. The professional game is 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 somewhat fractured right now and has been for quite some time. And so could there be some uncomfortable moments? Absolutely. But for me, and, and this is what, what I speak to 
past champions about when we discuss these kinds of things over the last month or so is at, at the end of the day, you know, I put myself in Scotty Scheffler's shoes and I think, wow, if, if this was me, how would I be feeling about this uh, on what is, is, is going to be and should be the most special evening of his golfing career? And I would want everybody to be there and I would want everybody to be having a great time and reminiscing and, uh, and just enjoying themselves and each other's company. And so that's really the thing that I fall back to because he went out and won that tournament in fantastic style. And he is a, a, a deserved champion with the run that he's been on over the last 18 months or so. And he is going to be coming to that event as the current world number one as well. And so this guy is legit and he deserves um, massive, massive amounts of respect from all of us. So that's, that's my opinion. That's what I keep falling back on. It's, it's for him. It's a complicated web, right? Because it is more, much more of a live versus PGA tour battle yet. At the same time, Liv has involved Augusta National in the lawsuits. Uh, it has made things extremely complicated for Augusta National. A lot of the players that will be in the room uh, are PGA Tour loyalists. I think you're, you know, you're you're obviously a commentator on the PGA Tour now, but it's not as if the Live players are suing you, right? But there are guys in that room that are part of the Live lawsuit, or I guess now that Live has taken over the lawsuit, right? That their league is suing the the tour that these guys play on. And it's not as simple as can we all get along? Like it is very complicated uh, feelings in that regard. There's been a lot of words said, a lot going on to, to for it to all kind of come together in that scene is just going to be quite interesting. Phil, especially leading the charge on this thing and drafting up the, the bylaws of this opposing league and uh, all of the friction that it has caused. I, I, I have a feeling they're going to kind of play dumb for, yeah, why can't we all get along? But it's like, well, all right, you guys are still suing the PGA tour. You can, I hopefully you guys could see how this is going to cause uh, a little bit of anxiety here, but Outside of the Champions Dinner, and I know you can't speak for Augusta National, but how do you think, if you were to guess, how do you think they're going to handle the live guys? Are they going to have press conferences? Are they going to put them all in tea times together? Are they, you know, going to try to create the most dramatic tea times? What would what would you expect to happen? What would you do if you were them? That's a brilliant question. I'm I I'm really I'm really not sure how that how they're going to go about this. You know, in a lot of ways, I think that's why this is going to be. Uh, one of the most anticipated masters we've had in a long time is uh, there's going to be so many layers and storylines from that Monday, you know, as those gates open at seven, seven or eight, whatever it is. And, and the first patrons get on site, you know, we're going to be waiting to see what are the press conferences? What are the players saying? What types of questions are the media asking them? So right off of the bat on Monday, uh, there's going to be a lot of news to be made. And then Tuesday afternoon-ish, at some point, the draw will come out. And then we'll be able to analyze that and see, oh, so they went with this, this, and this rather than over here. And we're going to be able to discuss that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, throughout Tuesday and Wednesday, get more player reaction and more press conferences. And that's going to set the stage beautifully for... Uh, you know, once those balls get in the air on Thursday and the competition actually gets underway to, okay, how is everybody competing? Are certain players more rusty than others? 
are certain players uh, not quite as comfortable as others? And there's going to be a lot of analysis around that. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating week. And it's going to be, I think, intense and interesting for, you know, the whole week from Monday all the way through till we put the green jacket on somebody Sunday evening, which is different to week in and week out. You know, week in and week out, a lot of people pay no attention Monday to Wednesday. Thursday and Friday may pay loose attention and then really knuckle down and, and start getting into it on the weekend as a champion gets crowned. I don't think that'll be the case at this Masters. Uh, there, you know, there's a bit of a narrative that I don't quite buy into in terms of some of the live guys, their golf game and staying sharp and being able to compete in major championships, right? If, you know, playing less of a schedule, less holes when you do play, no cut environments, limited fields, uh, not to open up the, the PGA Tour aspect of that of that conversation. But do you buy into that at all? Are you, because uh, I look at somebody like Dustin Johnson and I'm like, dude, that guy can play, they can show up and turn it on in any environment and block out all the things we're probably talking about and not even truly not care uh, but I also look at like how Cam Smith has played over the last six months. And, you know, I mean, he was in the hunt last year against Scotty Scheffler. And we it's been a long time since we've seen him play any kind of meaningful golf. And it's not been good when he has played. Do you do you think these guys can peak in a week like this without having the the maybe as intense competitive reps leading up to it uh, that some of the tour guys have, have had? Well, players like Cam Smith and Dustin Johnson absolutely can i mean these are supremely talented players and uh when you talk about cam smith should still be in his prime uh dustin johnson's still an incredible player but now in his 40s um so they absolutely should but i do think there is something to be said for reps i mean we've we've heard tiger talk about reps for 20 years now i just need more reps i got to get more competitive reps so we're versed in that and we're versed in how, um, if not, I don't want to get into the who's the greatest of all time debate. So if not the greatest player in Tiger Woods, the second greatest player behind Jack, Jack Nicholas, we'll put him as 1A and 1B. You could decide the order. If, if, if that guy that has been so successful thinks that reps are important, then, you know, you can convince me on that. Uh, so I think it is going to be very interesting to see just how sharp these guys are uh, and to be able to compare them to the guys we've seen on the PGA Tour who now with the advent of the designated events, you know, you look at Rom, Scheffler, McElroy, Homer, Morikawa, Tyrrell Hatton. We can go down the list. We can call, call out 10 or 15 names there. These guys have been beating each other's brains in since January, week after week, coming down the stretch against each other um, at tough golf courses in difficult conditions. Um, and, you know, it's like that old saying, iron sharpens iron. You know, that's really where these guys are. They've been up staring each other in the face, going uh, toe to toe. And so competitively and game-wise, they seem extremely sharp. Now, as a guy who likes Cam Smith and I've always been a, a Dustin Johnson fan, uh, sure, I'm a little concerned out of what I've seen so far in 2023. Cam had that brilliant win down in Australia, uh, the Aussie PGA, if I'm not mistaken, um, which must have been a thrill for him to win 
down in his home country after the brilliant 2022 he had. But really in 2023, uh, the two of them have been kind of lackluster and you can throw Bryson DeChambeau in there as well into that group. And so will these players be able to all of a sudden switch it on when, uh, you know, they haven't had that many tournament reps and they're also going to be uh, facing a, a lot of questions from the media, I'd imagine. Some of the media members who will be at Augusta haven't had that much access to them so far in 2023. So there is going to be a lot going on. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how they weave their way through that. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to qualify all of what I just said with this. Is a guy like Cam Smith or Dustin Johnson um, talented enough to be able to pull it off in one week? No doubt in my mind. Those guys are incredible golfers. I think that just the concern for me is when, you know, after he won the first live event he played, he was, you know, this is data golf rankings. This is not OWGR where they're getting points. He was number two player in the world. And since then, he's, he's fallen pretty, you know, pretty much to like a top 25 player, right? Which obviously is still quite recognizable. But uh, we, we saw him hover around that 25th ranked player for quite some time before he ascended to into that top five. And now I'm just left wondering, was that a hot streak that, you know, he's struck, going to struggle to recapture or, you know, or is he just getting, getting his season started? I don't know. A lot of storylines, a lot of storylines. Yeah, heading sure into. Speaking of storylines, um, some news hit the golf waves last week. A model local rule proposed by the USGA and RNA for elite competitions. Uh, fancy words to say there's bifurcation potentially coming to professional golf. What is your reaction to the model local rule proposal from the USGA and RNA? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, this is, uh, man, it's a hornet's nest out there. Speaking of ironing, yeah. sharpening iron, I have been in yeah. the thick of it for over a week here. I'm ready for any kind of discussion you want to have. <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I just threw a few tweets out there and it is, uh, it's crazy. The difference in opinion and at times even the vitriol that people come back at you with. It's just like, hey, I'm just trying to ask a few questions to take the temperature of where everybody is at. I'm doing the same thing at my home club in Orlando. Just trying to understand, you know, okay, what does the head pro feel about this? What do the members feel about this? What do the, what do the female members uh, think about this? The senior golfers out there. Wow. You know, uh, it, uh, people are fired up. Golf Twitter, which is an amusing place at the best of times, is, is completely fired up. In a way, I, I want this to be a bit more of a back and forth discussion because yep. I'm somewhat like the USGA and the RNA right now um, from a standpoint of, I'm not sure I've made up my final decision. I'm still in the information gathering mode of trying to figure out where is everybody. Well, to that, I'll, I'll start my challenge with that. I would say where is everybody from from reading like the reaction Roy McIlroy had some comments last night that we shared mm -hmm. um, in support of bifurcation the response that I read overwhelmingly is not coming like shutting it down immediately is not coming from the most informed place right so I appreciate that you're in the information gathering standpoint of this for me personally my opinion on this has evolved a lot from I was very much in the I was reply guy in 2014 saying like let him hit it farther who cares you old fuds like here's what you know blah 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 who wants to see it rained in that's so stupid like celebrate the athletes and it's like that was um have you ever seen that scale that graph that goes you know willingness to opine on an opinion and it goes up 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 
and it's something you know and the the, the x-axis is knowledge on that topic and they, they say the top is mount stupid where you're will you're you have 10 percent knowledge of it but you're really willing to opine on it i call we call that mount stupid and on the way down you're like ooh, i need to like like zoom out and get a full understanding of all of this and then maybe i'll be able to speak on it on the back end is kind of where i see this distance debate right because I don't, I'm still getting so many replies from people that are like, oh, just grow the rough up. That's, that's how you solve it. And it's like, man, I've got about 20 different replies to say that's, that's why this does not address how far the golf ball goes. Right. So yeah, I'll start with this then. I, I kind of view this a little bit more in flow chart terms now, but do you think distance is an issue in the game of golf? Not necessarily because there's a, there's a part and, and there's, like all my answers, it's kind of long-winded because normally when I'm on TV, I have to talk in a short space. <laughs> this of is time. your chance. So to when talk. I'm on a when I'm on a podcast, I like I let it all out. <laughs> so do I think it's an issue? Not necessarily. I still have a lot of enjoyment out of watching Rory McIlroy hit tee shots or Scotty Scheffler hit tee shots and seeing guys being able to bomb it out there. That isn't a, a skill in and of itself that undoubtedly is aided by the current technology. So is it an issue from that standpoint? No, I, I enjoy that. Does it affect certain holes on certain golf courses? I don't think you can keep a straight face and say that it doesn't. You know, we're about to go play in the Masters and one of the most iconic holes on the planet has just been lengthened by 40 yards. You know, if you look at the time frame between Tiger Woods winning in 1997 to now when he's going to play in 2023, Augusta National is hundreds of yards longer. It's an issue from that standpoint. There are certain holes on certain golf courses or certain golf courses as a whole uh, that just haven't been able to keep up because they don't have the footprint big enough to be able to adjust and move with the times. And that's where Augusta National has been brilliant and fortunate and smart. And they've been able to keep up um, with the technological advances. And so it's a bit of a two-pronged answer there. But you know, what I'm dead set against, and, you know, my thoughts are a bit all over the place, and I'll, I'll ramble through a few of them at different times. But what I'm a dead set against is we cannot just villainize the club manufacturers and ball manufacturers. I do think that we need to understand that at the end of the day, throughout this process, they have been playing within the rules that they were given in order to try and make a profit and sell equipment. And so, you know, the USGA and the RNA need to accept some of that responsibility. And I was glad to see Mike Wan say that, look, you know, governing isn't easy. You know, we're partly to blame for the situation we're in now because it was allowed to get to this point. And so I, I'm not really a huge fan of just piling on, you know, a certain aspect of this. Everybody has been involved to get us to this point. Now, how can we let tempers calm down a little bit and the temperature go down a little bit to where we can thoughtfully and strategically think through this and come up with the best possible scenario to move our game forward for the next 50 years? 
And just when it comes to professional golfers and people asking professional golfers takes, I also get a little ticked off when journalists or fans jump onto social media and, and, and beat up the pros for their opinion. You know, pros are allowed their opinion as well. And you need to acknowledge that the majority of professionals, at least the ones that we're watching on TV, they are being paid to represent particular brands. And so their allegiances lie there. Those are partnerships that have come together. And then also mentally, people need to understand if you have a professional golfer, the amount of hours that you have invested to get to elite level, to get to this point, to hone your skill is a lot. <laughs> and you've sacrificed a lot. And professional golfers are inherently and unsure uh, and wondering, you know, because you don't have teammates to rely on. It's all up to you, you know. Am I going to get injured? Am I going to lose my game? Is my putting going to start going off? So professional golfers are constantly on edge. So all of a sudden, when people start talking about, oh, we're just going to change the equipment or roll the ball back, you know, every hair on the back of their neck stand up because they're like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about here? I'm at the top of the game. I've worked my butt off to get to this point. Now you want to change this on me? And so, you know, the guys understandably uh, can get a little irritable. And, and that's what I talk about. You know, how can we all come together and, and really put our minds to this to make sure that we are doing the right thing? And if we go ahead and do this, that we do it properly. Because 5%, you know, we have so many answers that we still need to be given uh, with the 5%. First of all, there's a part of me that thinks if this comes into effect in 2026, the players, whether it's the guys on the tour now or the kids coming through college or the junior golfers around the world that turn pro and don't come through the U.S. collegiate system, they're probably going to make up that 5% in the next three or four years just through the way the training is now and the, the way these athletes are un, able to understand their body and train for fast twitch and driver swings and, and that kind of muscle recruitment. So if you think the golf ball is going too far right now in 2023, 5% could possibly still be going too far for you in 2026 and 2027 because the athletes are just getting quicker and quicker and quicker and better and better. So are we only going to have one bite at the apple here, 5%? And then by 2028, we're all going, oh, no, we still can't play uh, the old course. Uh, you know, I'm worried about it doesn't play the same way or Marion or Shinnecock or some of the others. If we're going to do it, should, should, we, should we roll it back even more? Should we do it one time at 10% or 7.5%? Uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that I'm still trying to work my way through to figure out what, what the best way is. Also, let's just take the 5% that they've announced right now. And they're measuring that at 127 miles an hour, club head speed, which guys like McElroy um, are creeping up to. They're in the early to mid 120s. They're not that far off off of it i guarantee you i could probably find 10 to 20 collegiate golfers that are up at one you know in the late 120s if i have a 70 mile an hour ball speed with my driver 
uh, or club head speed, excuse me. If I have a 70 mile an hour club head speed with my driver, is it still 10%? Or does that now go down to, or 5%? Does it go down to 3%, 2%, 1%? So are the, are the players that don't hit it as far, are they going to be still affected at that maximum five? We just don't know if, if this is on a curve or if it's just like linear straight across 5% for everybody on every shot. Or even for Rory McIlroy, if, if he hits a 330-yard drive and he now loses 5%, so he's only hitting at 315, and he's now got 200 into the green, but it's a much less ball speed to hit the 200-yard shot, is it still 5% on the 200, or does that now drop down? We just don't know these things yet. We need much more time to be able to have this discussion with the USGA, with the RNA, with the ball manufacturers to figure out if if this is the path we want to go down. Ooh, a lot to react to there. Lots to react to there. I'd say to that, need more time. That's what the comment period's for, right? We have the next five months that uh, kind of gather that information. This is not a, a hard set rule. This is the communication of a proposed model local rule. There will be a lot of conversations with those ball manufacturers. And a lot of what I heard there, and I'll, I'll, I'll just put a pin in, sustainability golf course footprints and things like that because I, I think that's yeah. an enormous part of this that I've not heard a good retort for yet or a good response to yet but it's absolutely part of the discussion a, a lot of what you said there may, sounds like just pro golfers being uncomfortable with change right because the ball is currently regulated right there's uh you know there's Te uh, tons of testing that go into the golf ball it is regulated at a certain swing speed now and what they've proposed is like look all right, the fastest guy on tour doesn't average 127, right? So let's just, you know, for, let's reductive for the sake of argument. Let's say, all right, even the fastest swing on tour um, on average, it's just not going to go more than 320 in the air now, okay? Let's work back to that standpoint, right? And the way I understand the science, and we got, we're, I'm not an R&D specialist or an engineer or any of that, I would think it would apply relatively uniformly in terms of how that ball okay. is going to fly on remaining shots. Now, that's a lot of engineering that's going to go into that. And mm -hmm. that's where like, yes, it is. Is it messy for the equipment companies? Sure. Like it is, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a clean breakaway. Should it have gotten to this point? No. I mean, I just watched a video from 1997 on the U S open people talking pre pro V one days, people talking about, uh, concerns about equipment and the ball and the ball going too far and holes becoming obsolete. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's been a problem for quite some time. And that's right. There's a lot of, is now the time is it is now the time? No, the answer would have been a long time ago would have been the time, but that doesn't mean that, sh that nothing should be done now is my opinion on it. And again, it's the, the you know, 18 hole golf courses that are developed now are 33% bigger, uh, acreage wise than uh, courses developed between 1900 and 1980, right? There's enormous footprints. And then you get into a whole, level of discussion of, you know, these are findings that come from the USGA is hitting distance leads to a reduction in the variety, length, and creativity of shots needed on golf courses. This is what Rory spoke to as well about it becoming a driver short iron uh, type of test. I think I saw stats that set up to 70%, I think, of approach shots on par fours on the PJ Tour are inside of 170 yards, um, mm. which if you're looking for more ways for guys to separate themselves, they're more likely to separate from the 190 range than they are from 150. For that's sure. just, that's just math and all of that. So again, there's a ton of different angles to take into it. And, um, I guess I'm just a little more surprised that 
I understand relationships with players and equipment companies. We have a relationship with an equipment company that is, has their opinion on the, on the bifurcation and, and rollback as well. But I look at both John Rahm and Justin Thomas and Sam Burns that have made comments that are not in support of this. And I want to scream, it, you know, this is going to be good for you guys. I really, really do think it is. I think the top players, and Rory said this, the top players are going to have a better opportunity to uh, separate themselves when Agreed. Um, they w- with this rollback technology. And I guess I would say to you too as well, I enjoy watching long drives as well. I do. And I think uh, a 310 long dr- uh, drive can be a long drive, right? I, I'm sorry, I do not know the difference. And I do this for a living. When I watch Rory hit a tee shot, I can't tell you that landed 335 or that landed 310. I'm amazed yeah. when I see it go in the air and fly and go high and do all the things that it does. I think that's definitely 1 million percent still going to be there for golf fans that go to tournaments and watch it. It's uh, I, I don't want to be um, shrugging off 310 yard drives anymore because I can hit a 310. I could hit a 310 in the right conditions. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not impressed with the work I've put in to athletically and all these things, right? There's just so many factors that have contributed to that. So there's a million different um, tentacles to this and, and ways you can go. Like, I think like, I think a rollback for everyone would probably be best, but I also ran a poll on that, and 14% of our audience, hardcore golf fans, were in support of that. So it's like, okay, well, and, and you know, the USGA has heard that feedback and said, like, all right, we're not touching the amateur game, but they've reached the conclusion that something needs done on distance for, and they list, you know, five different reasons as of two years ago. Here's exactly why. Here's what is happening. Here's what's going on with chemicals and land and real estate costs are not going down. And, uh, you know, the why now crowd has kind of bathed themselves in the recent success of golf and ignoring the the, the decades long, the decade long trend really going into COVID uh, of golf course closures going up and golf participation going down by a lot. And but I do. I do also think, though, it would be important for us to acknowledge, uh, you know, when we talk about a footprint. And, uh, you know, what takes place at, at the largest championships around the world, you know, that has grown too, though. You know, if you had to compare a PGA championship or a US Open, uh, you know, th- that footprint has grown dramatically when you start to look at uh, the merchandise centers they're putting in, the media centers. I mean, everything has grown. And so, uh, you know, I think you've got to keep that in mind as well from a sustainability aspect. Yes, um, but I would say also, you know, putting tee boxes across roads and at the edges of properties increases the footprint on top of increasing the footprint. And that's where, like, I, I get, I do get the, a lot of the feedback that's like, hey, this is 0.01% of golfers at 0.1% of golf courses around the world, right? In theory, yes, but, like, professional golf is played in other places outside of the PGA Tour. Um, there are elite amateur competitions and elite professional competitions in all corners of the planet, right? That's why I want to say that to people that are like, ah, just grow the rough up. It's like, all right, you know, pick up the phone and call Argentina and be like, hey, all the qualifiers for the Latin America championship need to have rough of this length. And like, go try to have that conversation with every superintendent uh, around the world. And that's when you, that's when you start to realize like, we're all playing with this. We all play equipment under the same rules. And that's something you can regulate, right? You cannot regulate rough height. You cannot rec- uh, regulate growing conditions all over the place. You cannot regulate where people put tees and, and all different golf courses. It's, you can't even, I, you, you threw out a great, a great point of like, what if we 
you know, challenge people to play farther up tees. I forget exactly how you worded it on Twitter. I was like, USGA did that. They, they ran a whole play it forward campaign. They ran commercials on there. And like human behavior just doesn't work in that way. And um, that's where I ultimately land on. And again, I can, I can go way deeper on this that I don't think this. But if, they, if the recreational golfer is forced to play a, a ball that doesn't travel as far, do you think they would be more or less apt to then say, okay, well, you know, if I was playing the 2023 golf ball at 7,000 yards, uh, you know, the equivalent would be to play a 5% rolled back ball and move up a, a set or two of tees. And so, you know, would they be more apt to do that rather than just get a play it forward campaign and go, what, what are you talking about? This ball is, feels great when I strike one, you know, four times around, it goes 300 yards dead down the middle. And I feel like I can play from the tips. And so here we go. Do you, do you think that uh, people's mindset would, would start to switch be, because it's almost forced or no? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I want to say no. I just th I don't think that's the way the human brain works. It, it, people, like I said, people don't like change, right? They don't like, I don't, I don't even necessarily want change for myself too. I enjoy hitting the golf ball the way that I do, but I also, I think it's going to be like the messiest for, ironically, I'm pretty pro for this. And I think it's going to be messiest for my level of player. The guy that plays, you know, 90% casual golf, but 10% competitive golf. Like, I don't know what the golf ball is going to be like in some of the, you know, mid-am competitions that I go to and, and things like that. U.S. Open qualifiers that I do, like, how's that going to work? I, that's where it gets messier for me. But to say, um, again, I, I, the way I asked you, and the reason I asked earlier was like, is distance an issue? It's like, if, you ha if the answer is yes, then something has to be done at some point. And I, I don't know how you can read any of the USGA reports which are dense and difficult to get through. Like I, I get not everyone does the, you know, I'm not saying about this to you, but a lot of like the audience does not go and, and research that in their free time. I understand that, but I don't know how you read that and think that something doesn't have to be done at some point. If distance is going up by eight yards a decade, you literally can't do that forever, right? And whether, whether that's, and they say that in the report, they say whether it's technology, athleticism, height, any of the things, whatever it is, this can't happen forever because this is for these exact reasons. And um, so then it becomes, what are the solutions? And this is what they've come up with. And I don't, I, uh, I'm at least curious to see how this one goes. Yeah, for, for sure. For, for, you know, just sprung to my mind now, you know, Ga Gary player, he warned a lot of people about this many years ago when he was saying, you know, there's going to be guys coming out here hitting at 350, hitting it close to 400. And, um, you know, we are starting to see that now. And, and now the de decision is, you know, starting to be made from a rollback standpoint. You, you know, when, when I watch the, the Open at St. Andrews, the 150th Open, and players get to a hole like the fourth hole, which used to be um, a very intimidating tee shot because you have that mound of rough, um, that sits on the left-hand side that you need about 280 yards to get over now. And then you have all those bunkers down the right that is just like a chip out if you even can get in there and hit it. And so it's like a one-shot penalty. Or you could go way left on that opposing fairway. And so you had these choices as a golfer. You know, are you able to get that 280, skip it through the rough? Does the ball get caught on that mound and you've got an awkward lie? Or, you know, are you trying to squeeze it into this 15, 18 yard wide piece between the mound and the bunkers. Uh, when I see players play the fourth hole now and, and none of that is in the equation, 
they're just heading to like a 120-yard wide zone um, past that mound of rough. Uh, does that bother me and concern me? Um, you know, I don't lose sleep over it, but I would love trying to win the oldest championship in the game for players to be asked particular questions on certain shots. And, uh, you know, from that standpoint, they're, they're absolutely uh, are concerned. And like I said, I'm still sort of baking this in my mind. Would I like to see something happen and for us to have a, uh, a readjustment or a reset? Yeah, I can go with you on that 100%. But am I, am I for bifurcation? I, I just, I can't get there yet. Now, I'm, I'm willing to be spoken out of this. And, I, and like I said, I'm gathering as much information as I can. But I'm just not for bifurcation. And I can't buy into the argument of just yet. I can't buy into the, oh, well, in college they use, uh, you know, I, I say aluminium. You say <laughs> bats. And then they go to wood and, and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, okay. It doesn't quite feel the same. Uh, you know, I just think we need to be so thoughtful about this because the last couple rule changes with equipment, I, I, I don't know about it. I mean, the groove change was an absolute waste of time, a complete waste of time. I would argue for the fact that it made the game easier for us as professionals because we did not have to question anymore whether we were going to get a flyer out of the rough or not. We were going to get a flyer. In the old days with box grooves or square grooves, Every now and then you would hit one that would come out spinning like it was in the fairway. And so when you were in the rough, you were like, man, is this going to come out soft or am I going to get the jumper or what's the deal? Whereas once they changed the grooves, it became so easy to judge what was going to happen. So that was a complete waste making these club companies do that. The long putter rule. We made this rule to stop people using long putters. People still use long putters. Some are telling us they're anchoring and, you know, and then the questions are out there. Are they touching? Are they not touching? You've still got an arm lock, which is some sort of anchoring, but okay, you're moving the whole putter. It's just like, to me, they haven't been clean cut and solid changes that have really made a difference. So if we're really going to do this and we're going to drill down for the betterment of our sport and the sustainability of our sport. Let's make sure we're doing it appropriately and properly. That, that is, that's what I want to get to. And I just hope we can find a way to do the same thing for everybody. I, I just, I just, man, I can't get there on bifurcation right now. And I know the world is, uh, it, it's kind of like the, the scene from back to the future was like where he plays the guitar and the, the crowd is just in complete shock. And he, uh, you know, and uh, he says, Marty McFly says, yeah, well, you're, you know, you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of my way of saying, yeah. I don't think the golf world is ready for rollback, but it's secretly people would love it, whether or not they like, again, mentally, they're not going to get there. But like you said, moving up a set of tees and playing in a tighter footprint makes all the sense in the world. And people, all it all, not all distance has done, but what distance has done is encourage people to play from farther back. Shots go farther offline. Golf is just played in a bigger, if you just look at cones and dispersion patterns of amateur golf, any golfer, it's a different ball game, you know, from a different set of tees and different equipment, right? And if 
no one said we were rolling anything back and they just started playing equipment that was rolled back, I think people would adjust very quickly, but it's just a mental hurdle to get over. And um, I, I, I think that it, it again, it's just, it's not about taking advantages away from anyone. It's not about uh, not rewarding guys that have speed or have, have chased distance or have made this a part of their game. It's just simply about the scale of how far the ball goes. Right. So I can, I don't know if bifurcation is the best answer. I really don't. Um, I, I, I am for it though, based on how strong the sentiment is amongst amateur golfers that they don't want to roll back. Cause like I said, you can go down a million tentacles, but I think we're going to end up at something has to happen at some point. Right. And whether it's now or in five years, that's where it's like, okay, well, what do we do? Bifurcation is the easiest one to get done now. But also, also, you know, some more clarity from the USJ and RNA on things that could, could maybe put professional golfers minds at ease. Because, you know, are we rolling this ball back a certain amount of percentage points and then still going to play the U.S. Open at 7,800 yards with, you know, 530-yard par fours? If I'm a pro golfer in my peak right now, I'm going, no thanks. I don't want to be doing that. Come out and say, look, we would like to get to a point in 2026 where we play the U.S. Open at 7,200 or something like that. You're making me you're making me ride for the USGA harder than I want to do. But I think again, that's what the comment period's for, right? I would I would encourage tour pros to call Scott Langley, who is in the Jason Gore role with the USGA, and talk about that. And I think the USGA needs to be out at tour events. They need to be talking to guys. I I have a feeling, I really do. The more information John Rom gets, the more information Justin Thomas gets, the more information that Sam Burns gets. I'll leave Bryson out of this because I don't think uh, he's really capable of changing his mind. But uh, the more information they get, the more they're gonna at least start to see and understand why this is happening. I think it's it's too reductive to brush it off as these old FUDs have no clue what's going on in golf and are trying to regulate it, which is some of the yeah. the most frustrating commentary I've seen from yeah, it's pros. Yeah, it's a stale take. It's yeah. a completely a stale take. Uh, I, you know, I think we all need to get to a point to where we understand that, um, you know, we're trying to work together for the betterment of the sport. And how can we find a way that includes absolutely everybody at every level um, to to be able to be in a in a an even better position? If you think we're in a great position right now, if your opinion is that we are in a great position right now, and I think the game of golf is in a great position right now, I really do. But how can we find a way to make sure that it's better than what it is in fifty years' time? That, that should be all of our common goal. That's what I'm here for. You know, I love the sport. The sport has given me more than I could ever have imagined. I'm at a point in my life now where I'm trying to find little ways to be able to, you know, give back some of, of, of what I was able to extrapolate out. And so um, what I mean by that is make sure that we, we continue to grow it and make it better and better and better for people that are coming you know, our kids, kids, kids. I am complete agreement there. And that's where I end up at. Like, I cannot foresee a world where golf taking up more land makes it is better in 50 years. Right. I, I really can't. And I'm not, I truly don't even mean that from a sustainability standpoint. I mean that from an economical standpoint of, again, the larger the footprint, the more expensive it is to run a golf course, the more expensive it is to buy the land, the, the, uh, more expensive that's going to get passed down to your green fees unless you have some benefactor. Like that's that's kind of the the 
you know, that end of the flow chart always ends there for me, right? And I think there's a lot of things going on in golf that are great. Par three courses, smaller footprint golf courses that are simple and fun. And I think that that there's a lot more future in that. And I want to encourage more of that, but also 18 hole courses mm. don't need to be on the largest possible footprints is where I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have one, I have one of the best small courses in the world, in my opinion, you know, a mile and a half from my house with winter park nine. I mean, it is an absolute gem of a nine hole golf course right in the heart of winter park. Uh, that is, is short. And it could probably do with a golf ball that is rolled back. And that's also where, you know, it'll be interesting to see with the way that they have set. They were very, very smart with the way that they set up the um, MLR, I guess what they're calling it. Could Winter Park 9 just go, hey, if you come play here, you play this golf ball. You play the rolled back <laughs> ball. You know, there's many clubs that, that may just want to do that to be able to bring their course back into um, – you know, I don't want to sound like an old fuddy duddy. You know, it's not fun to be on this block. It's not. <laughs> I trust no, me, it's, it's not. not. <laughs> Dang it! It's forty-three old. What am I doing right now, Solly? But <laughs> to be able to just bring their course back to something similar to the way it was uh, seen when it was originally designed. You know, this hole should be a drive and a six iron, not a drive and a sandwich. I, 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 I totally understand and hear all of that. I can go there with you. I think uh, just one final point on this is also, I don't think people in the public have an appreciation for how far this has seeped into mm. uh, competitive amateur golf. I mean, I play in a small mid-am event that has had to add tees on a 98-acre golf course. They try to find tees in the most random spots to just add a little bit of length here and there just to kind of in, in, sure. introduce them for a mid-am, for a mid-am yeah. tournament. So it's not, uh, it's, again, it's, I don't think it's 0.1% of golf courses that some people like to think. But I do just, just want to say this, this part, though. Uh, you know, for, for any of the listeners out there that at times get irritable with professional golfers, Please, please, please do not discount the work ethic, the time investment, the time sacrifice that these uh, people have put into getting to this level. It is not purely the equipment that is making them hit it that far. These are unbelievable hand-eye coordinated athletes that are able to generate in, like incredible speed and um you know it's 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 sort of been this meld together to where we're seeing what we're seeing now but the, these are finely tuned athletes for the most part the guys have invested a lot of time to be able to uh, generate that kind of power so and to that i'd say i think those players are going to get rewarded even more again i agree with you uh, on that i think the best <laughs> players i agree with you on that totally I think the best players are going to be able to separate separate themselves more and more. It's just logical that the further you get away from the hole, the average proximity gets greater. And so then the better golfer you are, you're able to have more of a space to be able to separate yourself, a margin. That's where I think it, if I could sum it up, uh, you know, again, a very complicated topic. It's that we're, no one is trying to take speed out of the game, right? No one is limiting how fast you can swing the club. We're not changing the driver heads. We're not changing the style of play. I, we can have a whole separate conversation about that, about it's mm -hmm. simply the scale at which the ball goes once it's in the air. And 
Um, it it is it's it's going to be messy. That's that's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, while, while, you know, sure, sure. While I'm while I'm here, also <laughs> growing the rough, please, please, people. <laughs> it it makes golf so boring. Yes, when you're not able to show your skill set because all of a sudden in five and six inch rough it doesn't matter whether you're an 18 handicapper or rory mcelroy you've got the same hack out shot just to try and advance it near the green it doesn't allow for any shot making any skill it's just and also to that matter it hurts the shorter hitters because when you start to get fairways you know, the, the, for me, it's at about 22, 23 yards or less. When you get to that point, you could be Fred Funk and you're still going to miss fairways because the fairways aren't going to be mush. There's going to be some kind of bounce and roll. So now that 22 yard fairway is turning into a 15 yard fairway. Even Fred Funk is going to miss a handful of those, except he's stuck, you know, 100 yards behind Rory McElroy now. So it absolutely hurts the shorter hitter. We need to like eradicate that kind of thinking from our thought process on this. Long rough is not the answer. We handshake meme on that one. We are on the yep. same side of that one, Trevor. So uh, listen, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and take all the credit for this. I'm not, don't, please don't let me do that, Trevor. Please don't say that. I don't, I don't want any credit for any of this. Okay, please. But Gosh, it seems like things have evolved at CBS over the uh, <laughs> over recent months and years. I want you kind of just can you take me inside the room, meeting wise, schedule wise, planning wise for it seemed like you guys got together in the offseason and decided things were going to be done a little bit differently in golf television coverage. And you guys came out absolutely banging this year. What can you tell us about uh, kind of the evolution of, of golf coverage on CBS's part? Well, it sure has been a lot of fun. You know, whether I'm the right person or not to be able to speak about the evolution, I'm probably not because I've only been working for CBS for three or four years and I've only been in this lead analyst role for the West Coast swing. <laughs> so I, I'm the rookie on the team, uh, really. And so I'm not really in the best position to be able to speak on, you know, the changes over the last decade or so. But I can talk about now and what is going on now. And, uh, you know, what happened in the off season is we have great leadership. There's no doubt about it. We have uh, fantastic leadership from a standpoint of our lead producer, Seller Shai, and um, our, our director, Steve Milton. These are people that love the game, number one, first and foremost. Uh, you talk about Sellers. He's a great player um, and has been throughout his life anyway so he understands the game and then you know we have tremendous bosses back in new york that give us uh give these people the producer and director the leeway and the freedom to be able to try some things out and uh, and figure out what works best for cbs sports and so it has been a tremendous amount of fun for me I, like i thoroughly enjoyed the west coast uh, was I extremely nervous? Absolutely. Uh, do I have a, a keen understanding of how great of a position I'm in as lead analyst at CBS? 100%. There's only been a handful of guys that have been able to sit in that chair and have that voice. Uh, so I'm very well aware of the magnitude of that. Um, 
but you know we love what we do we have a great team top to bottom in front of the camera behind the camera everybody in the compound hundreds of people that come to work pumped up uh, ready to go competitive trying to put the best product possible out there and so we have numerous um, group chats um, of people that are watching coverage week in and week out talking about things they like things they don't like adjustments that could be made and we're just always trying to get better and we're always listening to everybody's um, opinions whether it be um, you guys that know laying up or other people other fans that don't listen to podcasts that only tune in for golf from three to six on the weekends uh, that have no clue what you guys are talking about and they've been watching golf for 50 years just one way happy to do it and so you know you try and take an opinion from the full spectrum and and work within that framework to just keep better getting better and better but i am like loving my job and i am extremely uh, thankful to be in this position to be sitting next to jim nat nance who i think is um, not only a legend of a man but a legendary broadcaster and uh, sheesh, I just, I just hope I can find a way to keep everybody fooled for the next 20 years so I can stay in that seat. That, that is my goal. It really is. Well, I, I will say a lot of your peers speak very, uh, very highly of your work ethic that's gone into it. And we can, we can see it from communications we've had with you and then you're kind of seeking feedback and you want to, you obviously take your, take that role very seriously. Uh, last question I have for you is you guys have kind of innovated and, and invented this thing, the walk and talk, right? The CBS stroll or whatever you guys want to call it in terms of interviewing players as they play a whole do you get a sense that, again, this was a takeaway I've had from talking to a lot of these guys, is they the, the light bulb has at least gone off to some extent in terms of the, the role they need to play in the entertainment product of golf and wanting to entertain golf fans. Do you get a sense of, of that kind of urgency or that kind of willingness from these players? Is Are people lining up now to go do that walk and talk and, and things like that? And, and what are other ways you could potentially see that innovating in the, in the weeks and months and years? Yeah, I think it's been a great addition. The technology is fantastic. You know, at times is, you know, if, if wind comes up, you can hear the wind and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of people back in the compound that are working on ways to get it even, even better. But it's been a tremendous success. I, I don't think there's urgency amongst the players. I wouldn't have used that word. But there's absolutely um, willingness to be able to dabble in it, to talk about it to try and understand it. Uh, I think the players are slowly but surely starting to understand that, hey, if you have the opportunity to get 10 to 15 minutes of just you on CBS network between three and six on the weekend, which is basically like primetime coverage, it is beyond valuable. I mean, it is something that is so incredible for you and your brand and your partners to where you can just allow people in enough to where they can get to know you and you can make fans and you can keep everybody happy, so to speak. For, for me, the way I've gone about it is, you know, you referenced the homework earlier and the preparation, you know, I'm, I'm a range rat. Every, every moment that I can, I'm down on the driving range at the tournament, I'm at the putting green. 
uh, I'm trying to gather as much information from players, caddies, coaches, agents, uh, all, all sorts of people to just try and be able to um, add a layer or two during the broadcast if the moment presents itself. And I think as I've been able to get out there, look, the players still uh, know me from most of them have, I've competed with not that long ago, 2018, 2019. And so with my role as the uh, international team captain, a lot of guys got to know me better and better. And now uh, spending so much time out at the golf course, on the range, on the putting green, you know, when you do that, players and caddies start to get more comfortable with you. And they start to understand why you're there. They start to trust you. And at the end of the day, what I keep saying to them and communicating to them is this. Look, we can both acknowledge that I'm going to be on TV from three to six every Saturday and Sunday when CBS does a tournament. And if you're playing well, you're going to be on. So if that's the case, we have two options. You can either give me some information that I can talk about regarding you. Or if you don't, I need to at some point say something. So if you don't give me anything, that means I have to make it up. You have to guess. <laughs> so for me to make it up, there's a couple of things going on. I've been watching you on the range. I've noticed that you've missed 60% of your drivers that you hit to the left. I'm going to have to come up with a reason why. What are you doing with your swing? Have you changed your routine? Have you changed your driver shot? Have you changed your driver head? Have you changed your coach? And so if you don't give me some information, I'm going to have to dive in and figure something out. Because if Jim Nance turns to me and says, gee, Trevor, he's missed three tee shots to the left. Why is that? I need an answer. And, you know, as I've started to build up more and more trust with these players, um, they're opening themselves up more to it, understanding that I am not in that position to hang them out to dry. I'm always going to tell the truth, but I'm not looking to be vindictive or personal in any way. I'm just calling it as I see it. And I need to do that because if I don't do that, I sure as heck know that you guys are going to call me out. And I know that the, there's going to be people at home that are going to call me out. So it's just the way it is. You know, everybody needs to work together in order to put the best possible product every weekend. Like I said, please don't give me credit. I, that, I, don't, I don't need that, Trevor, but I appreciate that so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, we're going to let you go. Always enjoy talking golf with you. Appreciate the insights ahead of the Masters and uh, reacting to some recent golf news. And uh, we'll be excited to see you here at Augusta here in, the, uh, in a few weeks. Can't believe it's getting this close. Yeah, I really can't wait. One of the best weeks of the year. It's going to be awesome. Thanks again, Trevor. Take care. Thanks, Ali. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.